Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. It's election day. And this year, a record 257 women are running for Congress. On this week's show, we're going to be focusing on one of them, a woman whose politics and youth have made her campaign unlike almost anything we've ever seen before. At the beginning of the summer, when the family separation policy was playing out, I remember one of the Cuts writers, Gabby Paella, talking about how there was this Democratic Socialist congressional candidate in the Bronx who was heading to protest at the border instead of campaigning in her primary. And I remember thinking, huh, well, cool. But also, yeah, there's definitely no way this person is going to win. And before that primary, pretty much everyone thought, yeah, there's definitely no way this person is going to win. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was going up against Joe Crowley, who nobody had even challenged in a primary for 14 years. He looked like he might be the next Speaker of the House after Nancy Pelosi. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, meanwhile, didn't even have a Wikipedia page. But then she won. She beat the sure bet incumbent, and nobody saw it coming. How are you feeling? Can you put it into words? Nope. I cannot put this into words. Suddenly, she was everywhere. She was in Vogue and Vanity Fair. She was profiled in The New Yorker by David Remnick, who generally pops up to profile like Barack Obama and maybe Bruce Springsteen. She's been all over TV. Please welcome Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Happy birthday to you as well. You Thank had a birthday you. this weekend yes. on Saturday. Yes. How old did you turn on Saturday? I turned 29. 29 years old, and here you are running for Congress, and not just running for Congress, you're almost certainly going to win. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> I think we're so hungry for anybody interesting and authentic yeah. to come along that it doesn't even matter that her race was so tiny. That's Stella Bugby, editor of The Cut. She and I have been talking about how crazy it's been to watch all this. The minute that the media saw 
her and heard her, they were like, oh, well, she could be president. <laughs> You're like, it please was just sort of let her moments. be president. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, there's nobody <laughs> but her. So I hear, though, mm-hmm. that you potentially want to run for president one day. Is that true? <laughs> Mom, is that true? Is that true? She won a race that was at the forefront of nobody's mind on the eve of the 2018 midterms, a race that's not going to change any congressional math. And after she gets elected, which she almost certainly will, she's in a reliably Democratic district, she's not going to have any real power in Congress, at least not at first. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be one freshman representative out of a 535-member Congress. She won't be single-handedly abolishing ICE or establishing Medicare for all. Back in that primary, just under 16,000 people voted for her. But in the four months since then, she's become an international star. Why? In an interview with The Intercept back in June, she was explaining how she beat Crowley when his campaign had so much more money than hers. And she said, you have to beat them with a totally different game. There are a lot of ways she's been playing a totally different game. And I think that's why everyone's paying attention. So, what is it that makes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez new? To answer that question, you can start with one unassailable, objectively true fact. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is young. As you heard her tell Jimmy Kimmel back there, she just turned 29, which means she'll be the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. American politics is a realm in which basically everyone is old. I don't know if you've ever heard the term gerontocracy, but it means rule by the elderly, and that's sort of what we're dealing with here. So youth is noteworthy enough by itself. But talking about her youth also leads you into a conversation about a lot of other things that make her different from the average politician and similar to a lot of young Americans. For example, the average young American is less likely to be white. Alexandria's family is Puerto Rican. The average young American is also less likely to be financially secure. Alexandria grew up working class. When she was in college, her father died of lung cancer. She had to help her mom try to hold on to the family house. After graduation, she moved back to the Bronx. Her mom was cleaning houses and driving a school bus. And Alexandria took jobs waitressing and bartending to help the family, while also working as a community organizer and educator. A few months before a primary, Alexandria was still working at a taco restaurant. Voters in her district could see themselves in her. She's a woman of color. I'm a woman of color. She looked like me. She had political ideologies that matched mine. Tanushri Shankar is 24 years old. She lives in Queens in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district. I saw Alexandria literally build something from the ground up in a district where I live. I think it was like something that I feel like I can do because I saw her do it. Part of what grabbed voters about Alexandria's campaign was that she was running it in a way a normal person potentially could, someone without a huge war chest of family money or corporate donations. Her opponent spent about $3.4 million on the primary campaign. She spent just under 200000 One thing that I distinctly remember when I first started following her campaign was it was pouring rain one day and she was going to a ton of events, you know, going back from the Bronx to Queens, the Bronx to Queens, and that's not an easy commute. At this point, she was like walking into a subway station. I remember because she was like Instagram videoing it. She was holding her own umbrella. She's like wearing like a bag. It's pouring rain. And she's like, we're walking to the train station to go to our next event. Like, (laughs) I'm here with my campaign team. (laughs) And I was like, this is really grassroots. Like, it takes grassroots to a new level. One of the first times that I went out, I ran out of the literature, the palm cards that we had. 
Elena Acker is another woman who lives in her district. She volunteered for the campaign and can attest that things did indeed get very grassroots. So we just started writing the website on pieces of paper, and I would knock the doors and talk to the people and say, like, sorry, uh, we (laughs) ran out of lit, so here's the website, you know, go ahead and check it out. And that kind of worked well. It became a uh, conversation piece. Yeah. It's not a traditional campaign, so it made sense to do a non-traditional identity for her. Maria Arenas designed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign posters. And if you haven't seen them, they're very much not the usual red, white, and blue Fourth of July flag-bunting campaign aesthetic. They're yellow, for one thing. And they grab your attention with a portrait of Alexandria alongside big diagonal bars of text that look almost like a Soviet propaganda poster. When you look closer, though, you see that the bars are actually speech bubbles, sort of like text messages. And they're coming from both sides of the poster, like they're speaking to each other. And they speak both English and Spanish, like Alexandria and like a lot of people in her district. Maria says that was an important part of the design. Putting the Spanish and English together on the same level on a poster kind of communicates that we hear you, you're here. And you're not just, like, a subtitle that we're putting at the bottom. You're not a footnote. Campaign posters are just one of the ways a candidate gets her message out, and they're generally pretty straightforward. Social media, though, can be a minefield for candidates who don't actually know what they're doing. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uses it with the fluency you'd expect of a 29-year-old, which is another way she feels new. If you tuned into her Instagram Live on Halloween, you saw her at home in the Bronx making ramen in her Instant Pot, talking about how busy she's been and apologizing to viewers for the subway noise outside. She cracked up when someone called her ramen bougie. She's also used social media to field one of her first campaign controversies. It started with a photo shoot. The rising star of the Democratic Party has expensive taste for a socialist. Congressional candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spotted posing in a $3,500 outfit for a photo shoot for Interview Magazine. The pictures show Alexandria laughing with construction workers and sitting on a stoop downtown. Meanwhile, this being a glossy magazine, she's wearing Manolo Blahnik heels and a green suit by the designer Gabriella Hurst. It is not new for a politician to be criticized for wearing the wrong thing, but what feels new is the way she responded. Fox had successfully manufactured a controversy. The right-wing internet had picked right up on it. And Alexandria didn't ignore it. Instead, she tweeted. A. The alt-right doesn't seem to understand the concept of magazine shoots. B. You don't get to keep the clothes. Duh. C. I don't pretend to fight for a living wage in Medicare for all. I do it. And D. Get used to me slaying Luke's because I'm an excellent thrift shopper. When Fox hit back, it was with a huge image of Alexandria with the words, get used to me slaying next to it. She thanked them for making the campaign graphic she didn't know she needed. Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Earlier this year, Alexandria's campaign released a video that went viral. I was born in a place where your zip code determines your destiny. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This ad looks good. It looks expensive. It looks like a very well-made political ad. And it is. But the way that it actually got made was pretty unusual. I was working for top Fortune 500 companies. General Motors, Blue Cross Blue Shield. So essentially what I now see as like I was creating propaganda for all of these corporations. 
That's Naomi Burton. She's a filmmaker who lives in Detroit. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter, and in the aftermath of the 2016 election, she decided to quit her job in advertising and focus on making what she calls leftist propaganda. What we're trying to do is take all of what we learn from that private sector world about creating, you know, really high-end, high-quality content and just bringing that over to the left. Create Super Bowl-level ads for leftist candidates and for this leftist movement. A New York for the many is possible. It's time for one of us. Vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on June 26th. With lots of political ads, you get the sense that they probably cost a lot of money and yet have somehow managed to look really bad. This is one that looks good despite being made on the cheap. Naomi and her partner were operating on a shoestring budget. They took a train from Detroit to New York to save on airfare. In their video, you see Alexandria living a day in her district. Her apartment is played by her actual apartment. Her bodega is played by her actual bodega. She talks to neighbors. She takes the subway. And along the way, you notice something else that feels new— which is that Alexandria seems very casually female. She's doing ordinary human woman things in an ordinary human way. It's no big deal. That's the point, I guess. But it seems like the kind of thing you never get to see from a previous generation of female politicians. She does her hair. She puts on mascara in her bathroom. She changes into heels on the subway platform. Yeah, it's definitely feminine. Although it's more, I think, the idea that a lot of women usually just aren't involved in creating video. And so I think if more women were just involved in that, you'd see scenes in women's lives. Then there's another thing she's bringing to office, something that is simultaneously very obvious in the video and very hard to know how to acknowledge. And that is beauty. Usually when people talk about politicians as attractive, they mean something like not unattractive or extremely charismatic, or well-groomed. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an actual, legitimate, hot person who's about to hold elected office. Beauty is a kind of power, and if you believe in a politician's ideas, you want them to use all the kinds of power they possess to fight for those ideas. So, how do you use beauty? How is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez using it? And how are people responding? I mean, I'm sure I projected a million things onto her. Stella Bugby again. It's not just about being taken seriously, but it's like you can't control people's reactions to you. And she seems super comfortable with that dynamic. So she immediately knows how to put people at ease, which is this incredible skill that I think she's probably just honed over years and years and years of being very beautiful (laughs) and being a bartender and having to kind of mitigate that response that you elicit when somebody walks up to you um, or when you have to walk up to someone else. So she is not just beautiful, but she's comfortable with that. Yeah. And doesn't, um, isn't fighting it. It's kind of nice to watch. I was talking with a friend about um, the Vogue profile of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which we both really enjoyed and thought was well done. And one thing my friend brought up was that it seemed like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's beauty was sort of the elephant in the room of the profile, like that they didn't want to talk about it explicitly, but it was there. You know, like there was some illusion that Ocasio-Cortez makes to like how she's like a young woman with a symmetrical face. And it's like, well... The universal More euphemism. The, the universal <laughs> euphemism for hottie, um, which seemed to fall in line with this research we had turned up when we were thinking about this show, which said that 
on the one hand, yes, being attractive is an asset. Like, it it causes people to respond favorably to you. But people do not like having a female candidate's physical attractiveness pointed out to them. They respond negatively to that. And so it does feel like there's this weird taboo quality to acknowledging someone's good looks. Yes. It's just interesting to look at all aspects of a candidate and all the tools in their arsenal. And if you have a very good-looking candidate, that's a really interesting phenomenon. But even if you want to look at all aspects of a candidate, there can be something discomforting or disorienting about being that aware of a politician's physical appearance, of her literal body. There was this photograph that I saw on Instagram the photographer had posted, and she was wearing a silk shirt with no bra, and her nipples were showing. I I just had this, like, sort of mind you know, explosions, like, what is happening? You know, like... It yeah, just... you DM'd me. You were like, this is new. <laughs> well, this is new. Like, I I didn't actually know how to process the image in my yeah. mind because I thought, uh, is she okay with it? Like, I had every thought you would have if you saw one of your friends in a compromising photograph and then they were like, no, I'm cool with it. Yeah. And you were like, okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, but so. is it compromising? I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly scrambled my brain. I thought I've never seen a politician with visible nipples. Yeah. What does it mean that she's not wearing a bra? This is a wild moment that we've never encountered. As people's attitudes towards social media and self-exposure on social media kind of shift, our understanding of how politicians look and act will shift just because once you have this sort of wealth of quasi-personal information and images that are just floating around online, it's harder to imagine maintaining the same kind of super buttoned up, super polished and powdered and hairsprayed, lacquered facade. It just feels like we're going to increasingly be used to seeing more sides of the people we're voting for. Well, after I saw the image with the nipple, I thought, who has historically used their own beauty in a complicated and interesting way to advance let's say, their social agenda. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any female politicians, per se. I don't really think that Sarah Palin counts in that way. I just don't think she was in control. Mm. And I don't think she had a legitimate social agenda to further with her good looks. Like, I think she just was a pawn in a a larger situation. Vacuous ambition. Yeah. So then I thought, yeah, well, JFK makes, like, a pretty good parallel because he was obviously glamorous and he knew it and he he kind of leaned into his own glamour. Mm-hmm. He didn't let it overshadow him, but it nearly overshadowed him, you know? Yeah. But then I thought, well, maybe it's Gloria Steinem who famously was a Playboy bunny to or expose, went undercover yeah, as a Playboy to expose bunny. Yeah. the injustices to sort of further her cause of feminism. And I think she's an interesting character to look at in terms of being very beautiful knowing that that was like a probably a way that she dealt with a lot of men who would have been otherwise unreceptive to the cause. And yet it didn't sort of define her. She kind of used it as a tool in her arsenal. 
Beto is like a parallel to her kind of. He's not as cute. No, no, no. He's not as cute. He's not as cute. He's not as cute. But generationally, like in terms of no, like his I, sort I of like, like Beto, his sort of like he's skateboarding on yeah. stage, being weird and sweaty and kind of gross, but it's okay for Beto. You know, like it, it feels like a similarly like. Beto is owning his his body. He's owning his body in a he's similar owning way. His body. He's not beautiful, but he is owning his body in a He has comparable a certain way. kind of beauty. Yeah. If he were your friend's husband, you would be like, he's oh, cute. he's a cute yeah. husband. Yeah. Good husband. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a beautiful girlfriend. Beto is merely a cute husband, but still, they're, they're of a piece. <laughs> of course, there is something else that sets her apart from nearly every other prominent American politician. Coming up, why one of this country's longest-held political taboos has started to fall away, and what that means for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's after the break. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. In this episode, we're talking about the things that make Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez something new in American politics. She's young. She's a woman of color. She's run a modern grassroots campaign and... Yes, she is also beautiful, with all the baggage that brings. And then there's this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a socialist. She's obviously not the first socialist to come to recent attention. Democratic socialism means that we must reform a political system which is corrupt. But for all those other reasons, she presents socialism in a new way. Kristen Godsey is a professor at Penn, and she looks at what people's lives, especially women's lives, were like in Eastern Europe, under communism and afterward. She's also the author of a new book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. As a scholar, Kristen's focus is abroad. But working in her field has also given her a front-row look at the way Americans think and talk about socialism. It's a response that's changed a lot, she told me. Young people who were born after the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 or after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, they don't associate the word socialism with the negative legacies, the terrible crimes that were committed in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. They associate socialism with, like, universal health care in Canada, right, or free public college or, you know, a living wage or, you know, housing is a human right. Well, it's interesting that you say 1989. I mean, that's literally the year when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born. She's kind of an exemplar of that generational shift that you're describing. Exactly. She was born in October 1989. She was a month old when the Berlin Wall fell. So, of course, she's going to have a very different association with this word than Nancy Pelosi, who I believe was born in 1940, before (laughs) the United States even entered World War II. That's a completely (laughs) different generation, right? I mean, how can you compare those two points of view? I mean, it's really fascinating when you think about it in those terms. And if you go to somebody like Chuck Grassley, who was born in 1933, or um, Diane Feinstein, who I believe was also born in 1933. They were born during the Great Depression. Yeah. And Ocasio-Cortez was born in 89, like just before the Cold War ended, right? So, so they're going to have very different relationships to the word socialism. It's a desperately different point of view because of the generational difference. And so the second thing is that people like Ocasio-Cortez, 
were in middle school when 9-11 happened, Mm -hmm. and they were in college when the Great Recession started. And so for them, they've seen really negative things about capitalism. They've heard bad stories about socialism, but their personal lives— They've graduated from college with a massive amount of student debt. Some of their parents have had their homes foreclosed upon them. They've seen working class people less and less able to make ends meet. There are a lot of working poor. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're very critical of our system. And this is based on personal experience. So I do think that that's part of the driver here is that underneath this resurgence of interest is just a sort of a reality that the 21st century, the world that Ocasio-Cortez lives in is not the world that Nancy Pelosi grew up in. There's a little bit of disillusionment with the progress of liberal democracy and capitalism in the last couple decades. After 89 and 91, all the money that had gone into fighting the Cold War was supposed to suddenly come back and like make our societies more prosperous and make our societies more equal and more peaceful and all sorts of great things were supposed to happen because we were no longer going to have to spend all this money fighting the Cold War. But that didn't happen. What we got instead was just unregulated neoliberal capitalism with almost no checks on it. How does someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez compare as a leader in that kind of moment to someone like Bernie Sanders, would you say? Ocasio-Cortez was a volunteer on his campaign. Mm -hmm. A lot of her platform is very derivative of Sanders. It's just that they appeal to different constituencies. And I think that's, in some ways, you know, it's like the old guard working with the new guard sort of thing. It shows that there's a willingness of generational transfer of power Mm -hmm. that we haven't really seen. I mean, I think the median age right now in Congress is like 60 or 65. The median, that's insane. That's insane, right? They're 20 years older than the average American is is our Congress And when you think about things like global warming, like it just is, it's crazy to think that the people who have power over those issues are people who will not be around to reap the results. Exactly. But even, I think, more interesting is that they don't necessarily understand the this, this sort of gig economy that mm-hmm. so many millennials are a part of. Scrambling here, you know, a couple of jobs here, driving Uber or Lyft, airbnb out your flat when you go away on the weekend. I mean, young people are extremely precarious. And I think that at some point, there has to be a transfer of power. Like, there is going to be a moment when the millennials are going to be ascendant. In 2019, I believe, so just next year, millennials will outnumber baby boomers. And yet, when we look at the composition of the Senate, I think there's one senator in his 30s. It does seem like, even as there are a lot of people who really have a resistance to the idea of socialism and are probably she's going to have a hard time winning over, it does feel like she perhaps represents this way of almost repackaging socialism or presenting it in a way that people find more appealing or more accessible than they might have otherwise. Yeah. So here's where I think her position is probably the most valuable to us in thinking about like trying to have what she calls a moral ethical economy in the United States. It turns out that once you strip away the partisanship, if you just talk about issues like healthcare or tuition-free public colleges or trade schools or housing as a human right, the government shouldn't have bailed out Wall Street while letting the banks foreclose on Main Street homes. Turns out that Americans are a lot more in agreement about what needs to be done in the future. So the introduction of the word socialism, I think, 
in a philosophical sense, not necessarily an economic or political sense, but in a philosophical sense, allows us to have a conversation about what is important to us to live in a society where we have rich, robust social connections or where we're all like really rich, but living alone in our you know, apartments in front of our computer with no friends and, and you know, no lovers. Do you think she's likely to succeed in building a broader movement? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think um, in my in my more optimistic moments, I mean, obviously, she's got Senator Sanders. She's got, you know, some institutional support. She's got a broad-based movement. On the other hand, you know, she's going to get to Washington and have to deal with that machine. Yeah. And, you know, and then there are certainly a lot of people in this country for whom socialism is a very threatening idea. And I think she's going to face a lot of personal ad hominem attacks, a lot of vitriol. And so in my more pessimistic moments, like I'm afraid, you know, that that she won't manage. You know, she's, she's 29. There's a lot of pressure on somebody that age. So, you know, I think because I'm an academic and because I study history and because I study the realities of socialism, I know that you know, bad things happen too. Good things can happen, but the bad things can happen. And so I'm, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to make that leap of just total yeah. idealism, which I would love to be able to do, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm Gen X and I'm a little jaded. <laughs> History, bad things happen yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. If you haven't already, please go vote. And after you voted, we have another request. We are working on an episode about pubic hair, and we want to hear from you. We want you to call us and describe your pubes. What do they look like? How do you take care of them, if you take care of them? And how do you feel about all that? Do you do nothing to them? Do you feel nothing? Do you wax? Do you wonder what everyone else is doing? Call 732-507-5385. Again, that's 732-507-5385, and tell us all of your pube-related feelings. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Alex Bloomberg, who's recently started reading Elena Ferrante. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meese, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. Special thanks to Lauren Silverman, Matilda Fellino, Irina Alexander, Vigi Ramos-Rios, Noreen Akhtar, and Jillian Laub. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. <laughs>